jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven. The following is episode 19 of Los Angeles, part one of my two-part interview with author, architectural historian, and Los Angeles Magazine senior editor, Chris Nichols. This is Laura Craven with Los Angeles for the jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, my very special guest is author Chris Nichols, who has been a staple at Los Angeles Magazine for over 20 years. He's written books, and he sat on the preservation committee at the LA Conservancy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I wanted to start off by talking about your background a bit and um, explore what it was that brought you to this really varied career that you've had in Los Angeles over all these years. Uh, It's a book. It's one book. My father gave me a book when I was 17 years old, uh, Googie by Alan Hess. I would walk home from high school every day and see this abandoned modernist building falling into ruin, and I was totally captivated by it. And it uh, was a 1950s McDonald's that was closed and falling apart, and it was in this book. And I got so excited because I thought, my little hokey town is in a book, and my weird building is in a book, and it must be important. And I called the uh, fellow that wrote that book, Alan Hess, uh, out out of the phone book, and he became my mentor, my hero, and taught me everything, and uh, it just changed my life. Wow. Yeah. That is really great. You met your hero. Yeah, well, because when I was a little kid, I was a big fan of the Three Stooges. <laughs> and so I would call all these old black and white actors out of the phone book, and they were all really accommodating to my, you know, little nerd kid questions. And I, I wanted to have a fan club here because I was jealous of all the New York fandom, the East Coast fandom. I thought it should be in Hollywood where it all started. And everybody that I talked to um, was just so uh, helpful and wanted to, uh, you know, let me progress along my my path. Hey, you know, as a little kid, you know, and they, they treated me like an adult and gave me a lot of respect. And um, it gave me a lot of confidence to call Alan Hess out of the phone book. And, and man, you know, if any little weirdo kid calls you with some questions about their nerddom, you know, give them everything you can and help them out because it, mm. it sticks with them their whole life. That is incredible. Yeah. I mean, what a great thing. Not only were all these people listed in the phone book, <laughs> but even though it expanded your confidence, you had the courage initially to do that. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't know to be afraid to call somebody. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Plus, they were all from the old black and white movies. They didn't seem like real people. They right. seemed like just these, you know, uh, abstractions of yeah. you know, things. And you would get to meet them in, in yeah, person? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Mo Howard's daughter, Joan Howard, was the kindest lady. Took me in the attic, told me I could take whatever I wanted. I got to um, bring home things from, from the family of the Three Stooges as a teenager, you know, and man, nothing is a confidence boost like that. You know, it was really, it was really wonderful. Wow. You were able to hold living history. Yeah. That's, that's very And talk to the people that did it, you know, that were still around back then, right. because in the eighties, you could call people from the forties, you know, and yeah. they, they would answer the phone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was great. And so when I got interested in 1950s architecture uh, in the 90s, or I guess in the 80s, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, you could still call all these people that had done these amazing buildings, um, you know, and they would answer the phone and they would tell you stories and you were getting it straight from the horse's mouth. 
Right. Right. Wow. Well, I know from reading your books and researching you that you do quote Alan Hess in them. Um, one of the books that I wanted to talk to you about was The Leisure Architecture of Wayne McAllister. Mm-hmm. And he, although is not the inventor of googie architecture, he definitely expanded, you know, the area of that with the amazing circular drive-in restaurants that he designed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I first knew about him through the Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, the uh, great late modern giant sign neon 24-hour car hop Bob's Big Boy, which was uh, in danger in the 90s. And somebody told us, you know, oh, well, you know, that guy is still around. You should go find him. And he um, just started telling stories and they were incredible. And, um, you know, he may not have invented Googie architecture, but he sort of invented Las Vegas. You know, I mean, did the very first um, uh, major resort hotel there. And right, the Sands. The, well, and even before that, the El Rancho Vegas back in 1939, wow. like years before anything we think of as Las Vegas. And um, Wayne, you know, even in the, you know, until he died in 2000, he had this ratatat, hepcat, you know, speak. And he uh, of the 1920s and had just amazing stories and was there on the ground when all these wild things happened. Um at his casinos and all the uh, colorful characters and sort of underworld figures that hired him to do stuff. (laughs) Wow. Well, one thing I can say, I mean, you really did write the definitive biography of Wayne McAllister. I mean, it's, you know, that book is dense with information and the, the images that you included in it are just beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, Wayne's in Alan Hess's Googie book. And so I, I already knew a bit about him. But, yeah, I mean, um, finding the stuff, I'm a collector, and so I have a bunch of arch, you know, archival material floating around. But Wayne quit in 1956. He went and took a corporate job at Marriott, and so he threw everything out. He didn't have any kind of a collection of his own. So no I had archive. To, no, I had to rebuild all of that from scratch. Wow. Yeah. I mean, his kids had a couple of snapshots, but the majority of that stuff was just me going to flea markets, paper shows, estate sales, libraries. Um, tracking it all down and uh, and trying to rebuild someone's life visually, you know, right. for that book. Well, because, yeah, you include really beautiful renderings. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, some of that of stuff some of survived. I don't know how, but That's it did. That's amazing. And to yeah. think that you purchased some of that at garage sales. <laughs> yeah, well, know. I mean, you know, the, it's a kind of incredible. The, the great um, lengths that hotel people went to to publicize their places, they would publish these you know, really incredible artifacts just as giveaways, you know, like a, a placemat or a menu might have an incredible illustration on it. Yeah. Uh, a hamburger wrapper might have something on it, you know. And and matchbooks are one of the few places that you find, you know, real addresses for places. That's right. You know, and they tie in ownership histories and, and all kinds of neat uh, facts that you need to start doing your research can come out of something as simple as a matchbook. And I love um – some of those matchbooks that have the like the truncated phone number right. where it's just like the last five digits. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that and that helps date it, too, because those those those, you know, Crestview five numbers um, mm-hmm. end in around 1961. And so you can kind of get a quick idea of the time period that it's wow. from. And and and, you know, I mean, I have thousands of them and I and and so. I have a great idea of the history of L.A. restaurants and hotels and nightclubs mm-hmm. and all those things that I collect um, just through these little, 
pieces of ephemeral flotsam that shouldn't have survived, but somehow made it through. Well, thankfully, they did. And you Mm -hmm. included them in that because you're really telling the story of just a moment in time. You know, when I was going back through it, I and I started reading about the entree cafeteria. Mm -hmm. That is a word that I had not remembered or even (laughs) seen in so long. It was just great to be, you know, kind of reunited with that that idea and to to see how lavish the inside of some of these restaurants were. The cafeteria as a Los Angeles phenomena is something that we just don't really even understand the depths of, you know, mm-hmm. with Clifford Clinton and Clifton's downtown kind of being the most famous. But there are all kinds of weird cafeterias that came out of L.A., you know, like going back to the 19th century. And it was such a deal. It was such a big deal. And the entre burned down when I was just starting out, so I never got to see it. Um, and I remember oh. it sat as a shell for a long time in Hollywood. Um, okay. But, you know, a lot of these things, almost all of them, I didn't get to see in their glory, you know, and except for the few stragglers that made it into my era. Yeah. You know, but I still appreciate them, and they're incredible works of art, even if they didn't last very long. Right, definitely. And, you know, it was kind of an arresting sentence to read towards the end of the book that not one of McAllister's the drive-ins, the drive, not one gone. of McAllister's drive-ins yeah. exists to this day. It's you know, really the, unfortunate. The, those those beautiful sculptural, circular, streamlined 1930s drive-ins were so ubiquitous in LA, like, you know, almost in every corner. And um, something that you take for granted like that being completely wiped out, you know, it it happens so slowly you don't even know it. The Bob's in Toluca Lake is the closest thing we have, and right. and there's also one in Long Beach called Grissinger's that's now called George's Fifties Diner. That's pretty close, but they're not from that, you know, that glory period where they have the tower on top and the neon. I mean, you know, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like uh, like the McDonald's I was talking about earlier. There were thousands of those built, you mm-hmm. know, and all over the country, and there's um. You know, maybe three today that are one's in, one's a ruin, um, one's been added onto, one, you know, and, and then there's the great one in Downey, which has been preserved, right. which we have been fighting for since the 80s. Right. And you're talking about the original McDonald's design that has the arches that come up and over mm-hmm. the top of it. Mm-hmm. The yeah. big, those big 25 foot arches and the canted roof and the red and white tile and the fishbowl interior. And what a beautiful piece of sculpture right. that is. And really made it so special to go there and and visit it. And I'm sure that the people that were eating there at the time weren't thinking that, you know, however many years later now, 40, 50 years, some people— 70. The Downey McDonald's is turning 70 this year. (laughs) Happy birthday. Yeah. Are you part of any kind of celebration? Um, You know, I'm going to be out of the country on the birthday (laughs) day, unfortunately. But I did help celebrate the 50th and the 60th. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, it's just – it's such a, like just a beautiful jewel, like a great yes. piece of sculpture on the side of the road. And I, I mean I think that even if you were, you know, sort of um, not interested in architecture, you would be moved by the surroundings. They're so unusual and especially – can you imagine in the dowdy early 50s Ozzy and Harriet era to see something so striking and insane looking on the side of the road? Right. And Red just, and white and yellow and sparkly and flashing with a cartoon neon mascot running around? Right. Yeah. What a joint. Incredible. Incredible. And I love how you talk about – you know, neon was really important to these huge signs that were jutting out into the sky mm-hmm. so that the restaurant could be noticed from blocks and blocks away. And 
you know, just that way of incorporating neon into the signage. Um, well, and doing it at such a scale. I mean, the Downey McDonald's, good God, you could probably see that from space. It's it's absolutely stunning that it's from blocks and blocks away you can tell something's happening, mm-hmm. that there's something that's way higher in the sky <laughs> than it should be, and that he's running. He, this giant hamburger head cartoon character is running through the night, you know, and, and pointing and, and animated and excited and trying to get you to pull over and come in here, come in here. And it's just it's moving, you know. It's great, and and that and that store um, still popular. They added a drive-through very discreetly in the back, nice, so you don't see it. Um, and they added a little museum there next door, which is great, and uh, it's still going strong. And you know, Dick McDonald was one of the first people I met when I was starting out doing this, and he he remembered, you know, he was telling me stories about the San Gabriel Valley in the twenties when he first you know got here. Um, you know, and the and the smell of the orange groves, and 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 living up, you know, in the in the foothills, and and you know, and uh, I'm just so lucky I got to know a lot of these people yeah. at, the, at the at the at the as they were as I was coming in, they were going out. Right, but yeah, to be able to to take all of that education from them and apply it to the career that you made for yourself. Yeah, well, I just admire all of them as, as artists and, I mean, the McDonald brothers as as businessmen and as uh, innovators and all the strange inventions that they created mm-hmm. that allow uh, – that it allowed them to invent fast food. You know, the right. gadgets and machines and yeah. techniques and all that stuff that they pioneered out here in L.A. And I have to say I didn't know a lot about that until I saw that film, The Founder. Mm-hmm. But, they did know, a pretty good job. Very yeah. good, yes. But it, it does really illustrate how if a machine didn't exist for the purpose that they needed it, they would just make it happen. Right. I um, went to the smoky old rotten machine shop where they invented the ketchup and mustard squirter thing. Um, you know, this like uh, cone-shaped aluminum object with a long handle and you would squeeze the trigger and it would spit out the right amount of ketchup. And they made that in like a forge. Like the guy, when I was there, a guy was making like medieval swords in the place. You know, it's this ancient old forge in San Bernardino where they were um, the Toman Brothers shop where they were inventing this stuff. You know, he would come up with a drawing or a sketch or an idea of how to make an extra long spatula so you could flip four burgers at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would go to Toman and they would design and fabricate some <laughs> one-off thing and it turned into basically the same equipment they use today. They wow. still use a version of that squirter today. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just, it's such a funny thing to think it's really two guys, you know, like in San Bernardino, uh, talking to their buddy that has a forge, you know, shop down the street. And now it's in, what do they have, 30,000 restaurants around right. the world? Right, changed yeah. the world. Yeah. And I really did love the, um, getting back to the drive-ins that were circular and they had um, car hops that would the car hops always be on roller skates, or was that just a gimmick? I, I that was think used? that was something that was cute and people picked up on in mm-hmm. later in later movies and TV shows, like you know, on your Happy Days and things like that. But uh, in the '30s, I mean, uh, it's very rare to see them on skates. I mean, it's probably kind of dangerous, you know. They do it at Sonic. I see them at Sonic doing it now, yeah. and I, I worry about those kids on their skates with the trays of food and everything. But um, can you imagine Still. if you're doing it with? Uh, you know, like a, a glassware and china and stuff. Right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe it's easier at Sonic yeah. now that they're using plastic cutlery right. and yeah, paper cups. It was pretty rare, but I mean, I think that 
they, you know, if you look at the classified ads of the 1930s and up into the 60s, really, they very, they're very specific about who they're looking to hire. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, they even say things like pretty, you know, pretty young girls, 18 to 24 or something, you know, like real hyper-specific things, you know, like nobody over 30 wanted. Wow. And, and they would have these. Before um, this was illegal. Right? Yeah. They would have, like, they had, so that, you know, the, the drive-ins had pretty young ladies who would get tips, you know, and um, and uh, it was a thing. And, and it was such a thing that it ends up in, like, the noir novels. It ends up in movies. It's in a, there's a Bob Hope uh, and Ming Crosby movie where they see a McAllister drive-in uh, as a mirage in the desert, you know, as, as a great, uh, Thing, you know, that they can't have. It's so wonderful. Yeah. You know, it's out of their reach. Um, and those drive-ins were such a big deal in L.A. And, oh. you know, and sort of led to the McDonald brothers and what right. happened there. Right. And, um, you know, those guys, they had their own kind of drive-in. The McDonald brothers had a traditional drive-in with car hops. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, McAllister drive-in with car hops and silverware and plates and a bigger menu um, is just exactly what the McDonald brothers were doing. And then they decided to cut cut it down to its most bare, you know, essentials. And then they came up with fast food. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I love the name of one of them that you describe. And I believe you put the picture of this on the cover of the book, the Melody Lane yeah, drive-in. Melody Lane. That was quite beautiful. Melody Lane was an offshoot of the Pig and Whistle chain, which dated back to like 1906, I think, in San Francisco and in L.A. And they were big, Baroque, beautiful cafeteria-style mm-hmm. restaurants with live music and um, all sorts of incredible, rich decor. And there's one on Hollywood Boulevard next to the um, uh, Egyptian theater that was there until fairly recently. I mean, well, gone and then back and then now gone again. Mm-hmm. But the Pig and Whistle and the Melody Lane and the Hody's restaurants were all related. And those were by a guy named Sidney Hodemaker and um, lasted until the late 60s. Wow. And they... You know, they were kind of side by side with, you know, it was the nice restaurant, the beautiful interiors with the pictures that you include in the book. But also I was charmed by there would be a candy counter right? at them. And, and they then, made their own candy, wow. they, the house brand of candy. <laughs> right. And then also there was always a bar or mm-hmm. a cocktail lounge mm-hmm. that was part of it, too. And I just found that very interesting to have um, all of these different restaurant elements together. Well, there was a Melody Lane in Beverly Hills that had murals by Millard Sheets. Nice. You know? And, and I mean, the Wayne McAllister would go out and find artists that he liked and keep them sort of, you know, on retainer. They were doing projects. But can you imagine something like a drive-in or, a, you know, like a bar bringing in, like, really wonderful modern artists to create big custom pieces all over every new you know, 10-cent restaurant that was going up around town. Uh, you know, it's just amazing that yeah. uh, from the from the, mm, the 20s to the 60s, uh, people were able to do that. And McAllister did it really well. And he had a great stable of artists that he worked with uh, here and in Vegas. You know, the, the bars in Vegas had these same beautiful custom artworks. And, and all, all the... All the mid-century architects, commercial architects that I study and, and, and write about and admire did the same thing, incorporating art into their architecture. Mm-hmm. And and McAllister really was 
like he had dropped out of high school mm-hmm. and he wasn't a classically trained architect, but not at all. He and he was so young, like his first job, he was 19 and he hadn't really traveled the world. I mean, it's just an amazing imagination and eye that he had for style and design. Well, it was Wayne and Corinne, his mm-hmm. wife, his girlfriend, who, you know, at the time, who they, they were in architecture school together. And he told me and he showed me that um, I, have, I found in his house after he passed away. They had um, kept files. You know, Corinne would go through the National Geographic and go through travel magazines and cut out things that she thought were beautiful. And they'd have these big, you know, uh, obviously long before Google, have these huge reference files of things they liked, of tile, of um, architecture, of, um, of artwork and tapestries and murals and things that they liked. And they would use those to sort of create a fantasy world of their own, like at their Hotel Aguacaliente in Tijuana, Mexico, where I was married. I love that story <laughs> that we were going to get to momentarily. Oh, good. Um, but it's a big fantasy of what they thought a luxury hotel in old Mexico would look like. And, you know, it's part storybook. It's part of their imagination. It's part Spain. It's like everything but maybe what really happened there in that part of Mexico. Right. Um, but it's like, a, it's like a movie. It's like a fantasy. And I think that a lot of his stuff was sort of fantasy, you know, and, and you know, inventing something that didn't exist before. But Caliente was extraordinary and um, made under extraordinary circumstances that you couldn't drink or gamble or race horses in America. But you could do it just over the border. Right. And so that's why they spent all that effort to build that hotel there. And it was a money-making effort for the developers, to be sure. I mean, mm-hmm. 650, 55 yes. acres. I mean, that's insane? enormous. Yeah. But that Wayne and Corinne, they wanted to bring almost like a film set design to it where mm-hmm. you could just travel there and be otherworldly while yeah, you're indulging sure. in all this vice that right? wasn't available to you over the border. I mean, there's a Busby Berkeley movie about it. You know, it's so theatrical and uh, it's called In Caliente. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just the approach that you would see this minaret from a mile away and you could drive toward it and then you'd see, you know, the main hotel building was sort of looming and then it had neon and then behind that were these little bungalows that were kind of um, scattered through gardens. And I mean, it just, it, it, it was sort of, you know, like yeah, I wrote a book about Disneyland and Disneyland is sort of the same sort of theatrical storytelling through architecture that you're, you're, you're guided one way, you see one thing and then you move through, you see another thing and it happens in a sequence and it puts you in a mood and it, it sort of probably entices you to, you know, drink or gamble or whatever they're trying to get you to do yeah. in this hotel in Vegas or in Tijuana or Definitely. yeah whatever they're doing Well and I do believe that it was McAllister's idea in the Caliente casinos to not have any windows or clocks and right. that is something that exists to this day right in in Las yeah. Vegas Yeah and and the other thing that he did was he had this very unique uh security system where um, I did not know this until I was with Art Linkletter at another event. And Art Linkletter said that when he was a teenager, he was I was a spy for the Agua Caliente Hotel. And he said that he would walk up in the catwalks above the hotel and look through the holes in the in the Moorish sort of the ceiling designs, they they had um, <laughs> incorporated like peepholes up in the ceiling and they would have, 
you know, Art Linkletter up there looking at you right. through a hole to make sure you weren't cheating at the gambling table. Wow. <laughs> all kinds of really, no clocks, of course. Right, no all, clocks. All sorts of innovative things that became completely standard in Vegas later. In, in fact, the very first luxury hotel in Las Vegas that he did, the publicity for it called it the Caliente of Nevada. Because you knew what Caliente was. You didn't know what Las Vegas was. Mm -hmm. And so they were sort of selling it on this idea that it would be just like that thing you remember so fondly back in In Mexico. Tijuana. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, it seems like McAllister really saw, you know, the birth and I don't want to say demise, but major changes happening in Las Vegas. He was so disinterested in mostly the legacy of most of his buildings. He called himself a spit in the ocean. And he said, I'm not like this guy, I'm not like this guy Neutra or this guy Gary. I don't have a philosophy. And, you know, he got it done. He was fast, cheap, and good, you know, and, and all the restaurateurs liked him. And he was a real pleasant guy to be around. Mm-hmm. And he and he was really he was fun. He told stories. He was colorful and interesting. And he, he was very efficient. And, you know, and yet he was able to create things of such imagination and fantasy and luxury. You know, and and even even in a more profound way, like in, in, at the Sands in Vegas, for example, like the luxury of space, you know, that things unfold slowly over a large area. And they have like sometimes in, in old Palm Springs, you would see that sort of genteel, you know, spread out, uh, you know, grassy lawns. Um, and it's just sort of the 180 degrees from where we're at today. Where, um, you know, we're very conscious of space and of, you know, the environment and um, everything's stacked on top of each other. And there's just no sort of uh, grace allowed. There's no time for grace, you know. (laughs) There's no room for something like that. I mean, my gosh, now you have to be insanely wealthy to even imagine having something like extra room, you know, or like... And all the rolling lawns. Rolling lawns. Can you imagine? (laughs) That's such a... That was was like one of his hallmarks. That that damn Hotel Caliente, Caliente, had its own airport. (laughs) It had hundreds, uh, hundreds of acres. It had a golf course. It had a gigantic racetrack. And a racetrack, yes. And the racetrack lasted until... I mean, it may even be still operating as a dog track. Mm-hmm. It was when I was last there. Wow. Um, yeah. Isn't and that something? <laughs> that is incredible. And unfortunately, so the structure itself, though, burned. Is yeah. That right? the, 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 well, the original grandstands of the racetrack burned and were rebuilt around 1970. Um, the hotel, you know, things are different in Mexico. Things move a little slower in old Mexico. Um, they demolished parts of it. It's a school now. It's a, I'm going to mangle this, but a La Preparatoria de Lazaro Cardenas. And Cardenas being the president when they, when the government nationalized the property. So it's now all owned by the federal government. And so that's why I had to petition to have my, my wedding there. But yeah, it's, um, it's a high school. And it's, it's really neat because the kids go at night. You know, a lot of the kids work in the day. And so then they go at night and then they learn... Um, one of the things they learned is how to how to make things. So they have a whole um, section on uh, making musical instruments, for example. And it's a real it's a real different take on high school, I think, than than I've seen in most places here. Definitely, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so glad that 
you were able to petition for that and have your dream wedding there. Yeah. They actually did. They actually started rebuilding parts of it for us. They, we'd show up and they would sort of giggle, you know, and we'd say, are you, what are you doing over there? Right. You know? And they would be building like set, like flats, like sets that looked like part of the old hotel that was missing. They got the pool working, the fountains working. That's amazing. Now, was yeah. this a, a huge wedding? Did you I have? Know. I mean, you know, a couple hundred people mm-hmm. um, with an orchestra and, and a, a um, and I had a restaurant come and bring all their uh, carved wood furniture that looked a little bit like what was there at the time. And they and they we did a recreation menu and printed all the paper stuff and had a cake like shaped like the hotel. But it was pretty casual. Wow. Oh, oh, very. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not not much planning at all. And do you mind if I ask what year that was? It was 2007. Wow. When the book came out. What an amazing event. Yeah. God, that's so great. And I love that. Um, Speaking of your Disneyland book, that you you wrote that with Charlene, mm-hmm. right? And it's just so great that you could collaborate on that. Oh, she's she's real. I mean, I have a real scattershot way of thinking. I have the like shotgun approach, and she's got like the laser approach. And she's a librarian. Very and, complimentary. Um, yeah, and um, she really takes all my scrambled mess and makes it into something coherent. Yeah, which is great. But I mean, you know, it's it. I imagine that maybe creating a bunch of scrambled mess is a talent in its own right. I don't know. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it has to be one way of thinking. I got and I got a lot of thoughts that I just spill out, and right. then I have to spend a lot of time organizing them into coherent well, things. <laughs> and is that where I read this beautiful quote of yours in the acknowledgments that all historians wish they were married to a librarian? <laughs> right? And I just thought that was the sweetest thing. Oh, Chris. thank you. Really, yeah, it's uh, really nice. It's, it works out very well. Nice. <laughs> She's so logical. <laughs> <laughs> She's the Spock to my Kirk. Nice. <laughs> this is Laura Craven. For part two of my two-part conversation with Chris Nichols, go to episode 20 of Lost Angeles. Don't forget to subscribe to Los Angeles wherever you get your podcasts or live and direct on jasoncharles.net, Podcast Network, Arts and Culture Channel. This is Laura Craven. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Oh, wow. That's deep.